is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Jabot. Spies like them, Britain's intelligence chiefs, go public. Is this the end of shipbuilding in Portsmouth? It's a very sad day, but, you know, we're in a world where we get what we can afford, and this appears to be the answer. NATO holds one of its biggest training exercises since the Cold War. And remembering the fallen, we hear from the Royal British Legion's Head of Remembrance on London Poppy Day. of Britain's three intelligence agencies have been answering questions from a group of MPs. Sir John Saws, the Chief of MI6, Andrew Parker, the Director General of MI5, and Sir Ian Lobben, the Director of GCHQ, appeared at an unprecedented open hearing of the Intelligence and Security Committee. Well, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, has been watching the proceedings. Hello, Christopher. What do they have to say, then? I think there are two points that we've got to consider here. Um, we've got uh, Lobben, who is the head of GCHQ, and you know all this stuff that we've had about leaks and that information has been put out about GCHQ, etc. He says it is very, very dangerous, he said, because in the five last past five months, they've been earwigging terrorist groups. And what are they here? These terrorist groups are actually discussing how to get round the intelligence gathering operations of GCHQ. What we have seen over the last five months is uh, near-daily discussion amongst some of our targets, and I will bring out some, I will give you an example. We've seen terrorist groups in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and in, elsewhere in South Asia discussing the revelations in specific terms, in terms of the communications packages that they use, the communications packages that they wish to move to. So what was the point he was actually trying to make? He was trying to make the point, basically, that this is so dangerous and it's completely disrupted, and it will disrupt perhaps for a decade the whole mis mission to sort of gather information, to monitor uh, terrorists, and now he's saying that terrorists are just sitting there and say, OK, well, well, we'll look at that sort of thing, we won't use that again. So, ironically, at a public kind of discussion, he was saying that being more public about what they do was actually against uh, achieving their aims. Yeah, I mean, in fact, MI5 are saying at the moment, their lawyers are saying that to give out this information is almost, almost treasonable. They didn't say it in, 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 in the inquiry. But this is the this is their point. Is another guy which fascinates me. He is the piercing-eyed man of uh, MI6. I mean, he is quite a frightener, Sir John Saws. Uh, and one of the questions he got was the one I think we all wanted to ask. ask um, listen, Gov, are you <laughs> are you spying on me? Are you reading my emails? Are you listening to my phone calls? And he said there is no way in which we're going to be going to be doing that. And then somebody said, well, look, if you're not doing that, are you listening to everybody else? And he said, we haven't got the time to spy on each other. We, are, we have limited resources. Of course we don't spy on everyone. There are very few countries where we uh, actively have uh, uh, operations. And uh, I'm not going to go into the details of who is and who we aren't, but what I can tell you is that we are targeted against the highest priority challenges that this government faces, this country faces, and that everything we do is authorised by ministers. Christopher, before this actually took place, people were saying that this is very much a, a PR exercise for the intelligence agencies, but has it surprised you, the kind of things that we've heard this afternoon? Yeah, I think what it was, it was very interesting uh, listening to the, the people there, the, the, the MPs and the members of the House of Lords. This was a very grown-up discussion. They could ask them things which otherwise you wouldn't have likely to have heard. 
And for example, in the past five years, uh, fewer people have been killed by terrorist activity in the United Kingdom than have been in this year alone. And these are figures which are very difficult to get round when people say, are you any good at your intelligence gathering? The other thing which is extraordinarily important is when you consider that the head of MI5, uh, Parker, Andrew Parker, has been before this committee four times since he took over the job six months ago. Mm. That's how much they're being monitored. And this is why they say to everybody, listen, we work within the law. It's up to the politicians to change the law. This is unprecedented, seeing them on television like this, isn't it? Do you think it's going to change? Is, does it a mark in the sand now that things are going to change? Yeah, I think it is. It's, it's, it's not going to change the way they operate, but it's going to... This idea of public awareness, this idea that people say, listen, we're grown-ups, we really want to know what you're doing. In fact, the major, if I read the opinion polls correctly, public opinion says... You ought to have even more powers if you want it. And every time they've been offered more powers, a lot of these intelligence agencies, no, we, we don't want them. We just want to know, we want to know the ground rules and, the, and it's politicians who make the ground rules, not us. And is it in a response to public opinion that they felt they needed to do this in public? Oh, I think it's been going on for about 20 years. It's, it's, it's gradually come to this. But why now? Oh, because of all sorts of access to information, for example, with the leaks we've had. Because you can't WikiLeaks. avoid it because otherwise it gets in the Guardian newspaper. Is that yeah, what it is? It, it, that's it. And so the best thing to do is to lay it out as you think you know. The important thing about this meeting today was that people said, ah, you won't hear anything interesting. Mm. It won't be, you know, we, we'll, we'll have known it all. A lot of the stuff that's true, but there were gems in there that people said, I see now how it works. And what happens directly after this meeting? Ah, uh, there'll be another one. Behind closed doors. Yeah, be, behind closed doors. So is, it, is this door. like the morsel, the, the appetiser and then they go away and discuss what, in detail no. the things that we're not allowed to know? Uh, it's not so much they're not allowed to. We're not allowed to know. It's something else. It's far more complicated. Anything else they might have told us, the so-called really, really top secret, <laughs> your ears only. Yes. Um, you wouldn't tell that publicly, not because you don't want the public to know, mm. but you don't want your enemies to know. You don't want your enemies to know how much you know about them, and that is the essence of all intelligence gathering. Has this been happening in America? Yeah. The Americans do this far more openly. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, all the bosses in, of the intelligence groups in America before the congressional committees, and they were giving a right hammering. Um, but then again, uh, I don't think that what they were saying in America actually got the Americans uh, as far forward as we got today. And one of the things that these guys are saying and emphasizing, we have to operate within the law. And if we don't operate within the law, we lose the trust of government and also of democracy. The Americans don't look at it that, that, that way. So the meeting's taken place. Are we going to see this on a, publicly on a regular basis? It's a precedent. And we will see in future more sessions like this. I was saying that Andrew Parker has been there four times in the past six months. We will see this just the way we see the House of Commons Defence Committee. And the House of Commons Defence Committee don't tell everything. So I think this, this is a historical moment in, 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 in the explanation of intelligence gathering, British intelligence gathering, not simply to the public, but to a lot of politicians who didn't even believe it. All right, Christopher, thanks for listening to that in great detail and making all the notes you did. Um, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, NATO gets jazzy in Eastern Europe and how the Royal British Legion is aiming for the biggest ever show of remembrance online. Yes, sit rep.
Defence giant BAE Systems is going to cut almost 1,800 jobs across its naval ships business. 940 positions will be lost in Portsmouth, where shipbuilding operations will end next year. A further 835 jobs are going to go in Glasgow, Rosyth and Filton near Bristol. Will Inglis spoke to former First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Jonathan Band in Portsmouth and asked him what he made of the decision. Uh, I think this decision is uh, exactly what I expected. I mean, not necessarily the form of it, but the timing of it and the fact that we've had to announce that we have too much warship shipbuilding capacity is a fact of life prescribed by the size of the Navy that the government of the day is prepared to give us. Of course, there has been something of a boom in warship building in, uh, in recent years after perhaps many years of neglect of running on old equipment. Was it inevitable that when the carrier programme came to a conclusion, a decision like this would have to be made? Absolutely. And if you look back to the stewardship of the, uh, of the last government, the, the government that actually made, made the decision, the final decisions on the carriers, it was quite clear then that this big blip caused by building two aircraft carriers was an exceptional event and that after it, we would have to slim down. And indeed, if you look back through... The government debates in the, in, in the House of Parliament back in uh, the last three years of Labour, this was quite clear this was going to happen. Never easy, and it was always going to have this sort of slight north-south issue, which clearly, of course, is now... It, I mean, shipbuilding is a very political issue. It has, been made, it has been made more political because of, of course, the Scottish referendum. Although my judgment is that they have made the decision to reduce capacity uh, to retain sufficient capability, and there is sufficient capability in the northern two yards. Of course, the Royal Navy will need new surface escorts yeah. sometime soon, known as the Type 26 Global Absolutely. Combat Ship. Are we still capable of building ships like that without Yes, portals? we are. Yes, we are. I mean, the capability that we need in this country for the sort of size of Navy we think we can afford you know, is that ability to make one complex warship a year with a little bit of capacity for the odd bump. That is what the current capability, as I understand, will give us. Now, if we were able to have afford a bigger navy, then we'd have more yards. Uh, so we will lose scale here. I don't believe we'll lose the capability to build ships. Clearly, the smaller the industrial footprint, you have less resilience for things of the future. But I mean, I'm afraid we're in that world in lots of spaces. Yeah, and you talk about things of the future. What happens if we do suddenly need more ships for any um, geopolitical reason that we can't yet foresee? Do we struggle then to build them without the uh, extra yards? Do well, we end I mean, up in a position where we have yeah, to import? I mean, there's two, there's two parts about shipbuilding. One is what I call infrastructure. The fact is, as we have proved with the aircraft carrier, you can make the metal bits all over the place. I mean, you can make them in a yard, you can make them in a field. The, the, the thing you've got to make sure is you retain the industrial capability to do the design work, the integration, the weapon side of life. And that is what we will retain uh, for the scale we expect. We won't have extras, and uh, you know, that is a consequence. You either pay for extra capacity or you slim down to what you need. And from what I've read, that is what the government has done. It's slimmed slim down. Obviously, for Portsmouth, incredibly unfortunate... You know, no city likes to lose uh, skilled jobs, which we're talking about here, uh, particularly after the effort was made to move the facility from Southampton to Portsmouth. So it's a very sad day. Uh, but, you know, we're in a world where we afford, where we get what we can afford, and this appears to be the answer. And I, that saddens me as a Portsmouth native, I can tell you. But that's life.
That was Admiral Sir Jonathan Band talking there to Will Inglis. Well, we're joined now by Dr Phillips O'Brien, a history lecturer at Glasgow University, and Christopher's still here, of course. Um, Sir Jonathan doesn't seem at all surprised by all of this, uh, Dr Phillips. It's been on the cards for some time, hasn't it? Well, it's been on the cards as long as the aircraft carriers are running down to being completed. I mean, these ships are enormous. They were the largest British warships built. Um, when they are now coming to the end of their production cycle, there's going to be nothing to replace them on anything like this scale, and uh, it, there's going to have to be cutbacks. Yeah, and, and the message that came there from Sir Jonathan Band that it was a, a cut in scale but not capability, what do you think it means for the future of ship, shipbuilding in the UK? Well, as long as they keep you know, Scotston and Govan open and certainly give them the work on the Type 26s, and where we assume this is where the new Type 26s will be built, you will have the capability to build very capable and effective warcraft. Uh, but those are your last two sh- your shots. I mean, you have to keep Govan and Scottsdale open if you want to keep those skills. Christopher, do you think that this was uh, the most effective decision, the things that were announced yesterday? Um, it, it, a couple of things that might have happened. Um, one is that uh, there had been some commercial Attempt. I know BA is commercial, but some other commercial attempt. Like what? To to, well, to bring some somebody else into this, or even to sell off as as a yard that somebody else might think. Well, we actually can make something here. We can we can build ships, and I'm I'm. Yeah, I think have you got it, someone in mind that might have been approached, or a country, or what are you thinking? Well, about? at one point, I mean, it's not the same thing. But at one point, uh, the um, uh, BA were trying to sort of amalgamate. You know, with 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 another company, the con- continental company, the yes, yes, and and that sort of thing that I that I had in mind. I'm not sure we we went as far as we could, excepting that everybody was bruised after that attempt uh, two years ago. But there's something else here, and I'm not sure. But thinking about Govan, um and uh, Philip O'Brien read it sort of probably better than I on this. What happens? We do we reckon when you finish your ship? You don't just sort of finish it, do you? You've got to maintain it. Now, assistant maintenance periods, you can put a ship alongside. A 60,000-ton carrier can even do that. (laughs) But what happens when you want to do a refit? You've got to have a socking great dry dock in which that ship can go. And as far as I can figure out, there's only one in the British Isles that could do that, and that would be on the Clyde. Dr O'Brien. Is that for the carriers, you mean? Or yeah, for, or for, the, for the carriers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, the, but the greater refits, I mean, the thing that might happen is Portsmouth could get some work refitting some of the previous destroyers. So you're saying this, this is something that's been glossed over or not quite mentioned well, yesterday? I mean, my own view is these carriers, they're not going to know what to do with them what they're, once they're built anyway, and I can't <laughs> imagine they're going to be spending massive amounts of money in the short term, or even in medium term to refit them. I mean, if they could go back in time now, they wouldn't have them built. No, and they try and flog one off, actually, to yeah. India or something like that. Yeah. But the point is, as soon as they're built, rather like the, the bombers, yeah. the submarines, as soon as they're built, one goes straight into, in, into refit. Yeah. So the kind of things that people were saying in Portsmouth yesterday, they feel they're political pawns. Um, do, do you buy that, Christopher? Um, I think there's an element of this. There's certainly an element of, uh, you know, if Scotland becomes independent, which the government says, well, it's not very unlikely, but if it does come independent, uh, you can't you, you can't be our shipbuilder. At the next breath, they're saying, oh, well, we could be, build the ships elsewhere. Well, they've yes. been building it in Scotland and building it in, in, in South Korea. But this point about having the capacity to, to maintain ships and do the maintenance thing, the, the, you know, the great refit, which takes two years. You get rid of a ship into a dry dock. I think that's why I've got this big feeling that they 
ought to have tried to sell off that dry dock on mm-hmm. contracts for the for maintenance and refit periods. And I think that would have been lo- interesting. Certainly, Chinese wouldn't have minded doing it. If you can let the Chinese build one and of the nuclear power stations... Why did they do that? Why did they not do it? I don't know. I mean, is it part of this in- uh, decade of incompetence that we keep hearing about from the Defence Select Committee or, or, or not? Dr O'Brien, um, could there be a time, do you think, when Britain ever manufactures equipment for export but we don't use it ourselves? Well, I, I think it would be more that you sell the equipment that you yourself do use. I mean, I, I, I think the great question really is can they sell any of these Type 26s in a slimmed-down way um, to other countries? Christopher, <clears throat> yes or no? Well, they, when they tried that with the, yeah. the Type 21, the Amazon, it's a long time ago, they thought, oh, we'll build, uh, Vosbethornicroft, I think, built Type 21's Amazon-class um, uh, frigates. They said, well, we'll sell them to all sorts of people, African yeah. navies, etc. I don't think they sold a single one. And then they, <laughs> they didn't, and well, then they all started splitting down the side, yeah. and the Africans said, yeah. we were right not to buy them. Mm. Well, I mean, the thing is that not many people are building this kind of class, this Type 26. The Americans aren't really making vessels of this class right now. So, th- I mean, I'm not saying they will be able to sell them, but if they end up being very well made and successful warships there is okay. potentially a market okay, but the other so thing hang on the other thing is that you build 20 you build only we're building 13 yeah uh, careful of the figures you know i keep seeing 26 gonna have yeah. 26 i'm not you're building 13 13 in your yeah. dreams you're building thir- in my dreams in my yeah. dreams we haven't got yeah. enough sailors anyway except yeah. jonathan band he'll go out and fly anything come on on to, so, on to the point please the point being is that when you've got 13 you've probably got only a maximum six at sea at any one time mm-hmm. if you put together a battle group with a, 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 an aircraft carrier, that aircraft carrier uses up those six frigates very, very quickly. And that is when you okay. get into this whole maintenance and refit business. Dr O'Brien, imagine one day, the government of the day decides we really want to bolster the fleet, that we really want to build a lot more Royal Navy ships. Um, wow. Would we be able to do it? I almost can't imagine that. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, in the next 20 years, I can't imagine it happening. Well, it mm. did happen one time, of course, that was World yeah. War Two, and he, yes. went off, he went across the Atlantic <laughs> yeah. and bought them. And the other thing is you can't just build a ship. It yeah. takes 15 years to develop a ship. So when Jonathan Band, the Admiral, was yeah. talking about, well, you might suddenly want to do this, there is no yeah. suddenly in shipbuilding. No. All yeah, right. Me. Sorry, go on, Dr. O'Brien. No, no, I mean, the key thing is, as, as the Admiral pointed out, it's really having this design capability is so crucial. And it will be interesting to see if that is maintained. All right, Dr. Phillips O'Brien, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. One of NATO's biggest joint training exercises since the Cold War is taking place across Europe. 6,000 troops, 350 vehicles, 60 aircraft and helicopters, 20 ships and one submarine are taking part in the eight-day-long exercise steadfast jazz in Latvia and Poland. Its aim is to preserve and develop the close-knit integration of troops from NATO member countries. Earlier, I spoke to BFBS reporter Rob Olver, who's in Poland. Well, this is the Jasko Pomorski training area. The British Army actually uh, have trained here. and It's a vast, sprawling area. And to give you an idea of the kind of area, um, I, to get here, travelled along something like 60 kilometres of, of what you would normally describe as lanes. So it's, it's a very isolated, remote part of uh, northwest Poland. Which countries are involved in this exercise? Well, all 28 NATO countries uh, are here. Uh, France and the hosts, Poland, are the main contributors. 
Britain uh, actually has 280 personnel aboard the Royal Navy minesweeper HMS Ledbury. That's out in the Baltic. And in addition, there are non-NATO nations, Sweden and Finland, uh, along with uh, Ukraine, which has contributed a force of Marines. And why is NATO doing this? Well, it's designed to train and certify uh, the command structure of uh, what's known as the NATO Response Force. That's a go-anywhere, 13,000-strong strike, international strike force that's meant to deter any threat or deal with any crisis if NATO alliance governments decide to use it. Um, but this exercise is also about uh, the close-knit integration established between NATO countries over a, a decade in Afghanistan and continuing to develop that relationship uh, after the combat mission there ends next year. And there's another reason why uh, Steadfast Jazz, as this exercise is called, is being held in Poland and the Baltic states. It's essentially meant to reassure countries that are perhaps a little bit nervous about neighbouring Russia, although NATO insists the Kremlin is a partner now, not a foe, and uh, Russia even has some observers here. How big is the US involvement? Ah, well, that's the big point that people are, are discussing. Uh, it's, it's actually quite a small presence, uh, around 200 troops. I mean, some say that, uh, well, you know, America doesn't really need to... Uh, train that much. It's, it's had tremendous uh, operational experience over the past 10 years in many places, and perhaps uh, you know, it, it can just depart from this exercise. However, uh, some see this uh, as a signal that uh, America may actually be slowly disengaging from Europe as it switches its attention to other parts of the world, most notably the Pacific. And Rob, just a final thing. Um, any idea where the name for this exercise came from? Because Steadfast Jazz is one of the more unusual ones. Well, yes. I mean, uh, I have heard that uh, the S stands for SHAPE, which is Supreme, uh, Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, and that J stands for Joint. Of course, this is a joint exercise um, there are also jokes about, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, about uh, uh, Mr. Jasmussen instead of Mr. Rasmussen, <laughs> the, the uh, Secretary General of NATO. But uh, there we are. I don't honestly know. That was Rob Olver reporting from Poland. Military personnel, veterans and celebrities have enjoyed a bus ride around London to help the Royal British Legion raise a million pounds in a single day ahead of Remembrance Sunday. Around 2,000 former and ex-servicemen and women are taking part in London Poppy Day. This year, the charity is aiming for the biggest ever online show of Remembrance. Ahead of today's big fundraising push, I spoke to the RBL's Head of Remembrance, Helen Hill, and asked her how that would be done. Um, it's a system called Thunderclap and we were the first charity to do it last year and we got 10 million hits um, on our system as a result and it's a brilliant way to approach lots of younger people via social media they go onto our website, they go to Thunderclap link and then um, they can store the two minute silence on their system it gives them notification and it goes to all their friends and followers as well And tell us a bit more about how you're going to be marking Remembrance Day well, we've got a whole series of events. We've we had obviously had the Poppy Appeal launch a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've got the Festival Remembrance on Saturday, the formal March Past the Cenotaph on Sunday, and then Silence in the Square and Trafalgar Square on Monday, which is open to everybody. This week, the Chief of Defence Staff gave his views on the challenges facing him post-Afghanistan and resetting the public image of the armed forces. Do you think that's something that needs doing? 
obviously for us, um, serving the armed forces community and looking after their welfare needs. Um, I think remembrance and support for that side of things is as high as ever, and the British public are really firmly behind that. And what kind of preparations are you making for post-Afghanistan to keep the armed forces, though, high in the public perception? Well, we're spending £1.6 million every single week on welfare, so that's for everybody from um, a child of a serving member of the personnel you know, who could be two weeks old to somebody uh, aged over 100. So veterans, old and young, and their families, we're supporting them in lots and lots of different ways. And I think the public realise that that need is as great as ever. You yourself are very involved in the commemorations to mark the First World War next year. How will that differ, or are there any similarities to be drawn with Remembrance Day? Well, basically, it's business as usual for the Legion in terms of our role as national custodians of remembrance. Everything we do every year will happen throughout the 2014-18 period. But we have a huge involvement in the centenary commemorations and lots of projects and lots of partnerships. So people need to watch this space, really. And is there a kind of message? Is there a difference in the message you want to get out to people? The key for us is that we think that remembrance connects the past and the present and the future. So um, wearing a poppy, we're learning from the past and we're looking ahead to a brighter future. So for us, it's not just about the First World War, it's all the conflict since then, the role of the armed forces community today and, and looking ahead, and looking ahead at their needs. You know, if somebody's had a terrible injury, they're going to need help for the rest of their lives, and that could be another 60 or 70 years, and we're going to be there for them for that, for that lifespan. And looking ahead, do you think those First World War commemorations will make a difference, whether it be positive or negative, to the donations for the poppy appeal? I think that the support is so great in terms of remembrance and, and what the commemorations are about. As long as we look at the legacy of the First World War and what we've learned from that and what it applies to in the 21st century, I think we'll be on the right track. And if you were to describe what the poppy itself means, such a potent symbol of Remembrance Day, is it inspiration or is it about sacrifice? Well, it's about both, really. It's the ultimate symbol of remembrance, but it's also about hope for the future, as I just said. So, um, you know, young people in particular understand about the poppy and they're really supportive of the poppy appeal and they're studying remembrance in school uh, across the country we, we reach about two million young people with our learning resources so they do understand about remembrance and it's their future they're the ones shaping it and on a personal note perhaps in a previous job where's the most unusual place that you've observed the two minute silence do you know, it's probably, as a teenager, I remember everyone stopping for two minutes. I think I was in the middle of a supermarket and I stopped, all the trolleys stopped and everyone stopped and that was it. Must have been a bit of a surprise. No, it just felt completely natural, just as it does now. That was Helen Hill from the Royal British Legion. Now, Christopher, you got a sense of how people are building up for Remembrance Sunday? I was watching coal streams, uh, coal streams with their buckets. Um, uh, not many people putting in, and sort of it was the younger people putting in rather than the older generation. And there was Mrs Clegg, wife of the Deputy Prime Minister. She was shaking her bucket at one of the stations. Really? Yeah, oh, this week at one of the stations. Not many people putting in, far more photographers than sort of uh, coins going in. But, you know, this is important because it's 1914-18 commemorations. And in the, in the British mind, the poppies were probably the last survivors of that war. And there's a sense of Siegfried Sassoon, the poet, and his death thing. His poet on when death goes to the end of the bed. And there's this struggling trooper dying. And death put his hand on the bed and said, I choose him. That is what this Poppy Day thing is all about. I think they'll get their million. Well, let's have a little look forward to the rest of the week. Um, Snowden and Germany in this week's six pack. Yeah. Um, in Berlin last night, I was hearing this. 
the Germans are thinking very strongly about giving Snowden uh, asylum in order to Why? get at the Americans who bugged Merkel's telephone. Africa in uh, investment? Uh, the British are saying, let's invest in Africa to beat the Chinese who are investing in, in Africa. Yes, Arafat. Uh, polonium, the, the, the poison that poisoned one of the KGB agents in, in London two years, or oh, five years ago, uh, was used to kill him. 18 times the, the, the accepted dose he had in his, uh, in his body. It was China. China has got a big problem now because terrorist bombs, more terrorist bombs this week in, in China. You can't hide it. And this is, this is totally alien to China. We've got to watch this because the result of this could be quite devastating in international relations. What the heck? Let's make it five this week on this day. Ah, yes. 1872. On this day, 1872, a ship, sailing ship, set sail across the Atlantic from New York. It was bound for Genoa in Italy. Uh, it disappeared and it was found a month later drifting in the Atlantic. Uh, there was warm food still on board, and there was no sign of violence. But there were no people, and those people were never found. There was no sign of them anyway. And that boat was the Murray Celeste. And somehow when we, we... We set up a mystery there, but somehow in a week when we're talking about the future of British ships, etc., they're all Marie Celeste's in some sort of way. They'll just find them floating in the Atlantic with nobody on board. <laughs> Christopher, thank you very much. That is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. Sitrep is back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS.